0: From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. Well, we're in uh, week four of our series called Seven, which is a study of Jesus' words to the seven churches of Revelation. So we're in the book of Revelation. You have a Bible turned there physical Bible or a a digital one, Uh, turn to chapter two of Revelation. When we think of the word revelation, we tend to think of the complete destruction of the world. We think of day of judgment, and that's because the word revelation comes from the word apocalyptus in the Greek, Apocalyptus. And if you were to Google what apocalypse means, you Googled the definition apocalypse, you would literally get the complete destruction of the world. And that's where our 21st century brain goes. But that is not what the writer John and the book of Revelation, the time it was written, that Greek word means. That Greek word simply means an unveiling or to reveal. And so what Jesus is doing in this book is he's, he's pulling back the curtain. He's lifting the cover and showing the churches and showing us what's there that they can't see, what's happening behind the scenes. And if we're going to understand this book as a whole, we're only looking at the first three chapters, but if we're really going to understand Revelation as a whole, we need to keep that in mind. And it's important for us today, in the here and now, to keep in mind that there are things happening behind the scenes that we cannot see with our natural eyes. That there exists beyond what we see in day in and day out um, things in the unseen realm that God is orchestrating and the enemy is fighting against. And there's a battle that's going on. We'll talk a little bit about that, and we need to keep that in mind as we navigate. So this is a. Uh, this is a John here. John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos for living for Jesus. Imagine living in a world where your faith in Christ was against the law. Well, in some places that's true. Thankfully not where we exist and we live. But this was for John. And he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And he's writing this letter as he's as been dictated to him and revealed to him by Jesus. And the first thing that John sees in this letter is Jesus standing in all of his glory in the middle of the seven churches. So John's on this island, and he's a pastor, and he's an apostle, and he's been um, leading these churches and facilitating and ministering to these churches, and now he's far away from them, 40 miles away. They're on the mainland, but Jesus reveals to John he's with them. I kind of get this image in my head when I think about that of, like, the elementary school teacher. You know, kids would go out at recess time. Remember recess time? It was the best part of school. I got some. I got some crazy, vivid memories of recess time when I was a kid. Like some really good ones and some really, really bad ones. Like everything happened at recess time. But the teachers would would walk out on the. You know, for me, it was a, you know, it was a field. They would walk among the students. They would watch over the students for the most part while they're out at recess. And when they would come back in and they'd sit down at the desk, the teacher would walk among the desks to monitor the students. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing in the middle of the churches. He's watching over them, but he's also monitoring them. And he stands in the middle of these churches, and he writes this, these messages to these churches, these prophetic words to, for John to give to the churches. And he first addresses his Ephesus. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Then Smyrna, and now he addresses Pergamum. And what we're asking ourselves is, what is he saying to this church? And then what is he saying to us? And that's really a good thing on when you're reading scripture anywhere, any book, any Old Testament, New Testament. What is the author communicating to the people he's communicating to? And then turn, what does that mean for for me and for us today? So, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 12 all the way to 17. It goes like this To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword I know where you live You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So let's bow our heads one more time and let's ask the Spirit to speak to us today. Holy Spirit we open our ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And we ask that we would not only hear, but we would respond. Lord, I, I think often of, of sermons and church and services where we can express, I can express, the, the preacher can share one thing, but Lord, you can speak to each and every individual as individuals, to circumstances in each of our lives that are in complete, uh, complete differences, Lord, and in, in specific to our situations. And so speak this morning as only you can speak. I pray that you'd encourage, Lord, and I pray that you would reveal stuff to us that maybe we need to repent of and turn from, God. Help us to see the things you want us to see this morning. We submit ourselves to your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You know, it's good to communicate back with me because it helps, just so you know. When, you, when you're like, yeah, woo, amen, with ya. You know, you don't have to be like so like quiet, because then I feel like I need to be quiet. So yeah, there we go. Give me some noise. Hey, boo, huh? yeah. <laughs> Pergamum, Pergamum was a cultural and administrative uh, center in Asia Minor. It was rich and powerful, and it sat on top of a rock, a citadel hill. We're going to show you an image here this this morning. It was a, a, a citadel, the rock was like a flat top surface that rose above the plain. So if you could zoom out, this would have been like a hill, and this is, would have been where the, the city was built upon. And the symbol of the city was a sword, and it was one of the few cities that Rome had given the right to the sword, which meant that they were allowed to inflict capital punishment. So Jesus comes right out of the gate to this church and he presents himself to this church not as the one who comes with the sword, but as one who comes with a sharp, double-edged sword. Keep in mind that each message to each church begins with a description of Jesus in the vision from chapter one, which was a reference to who Jesus was. If you went back to chapter one, we read it a few weeks back. It's a description of who Jesus is, but also has meaning for the city and for the church. And so in chapter 1, Jesus is described as having a sharp, double-edged sword come out of his mouth. A sharp, double-edged sword in that time was was better and more powerful than a regular sword because it had two edges. So it could move quicker and it could cut uh, more quickly. And this was a challenge to this city, Pergamum, and to this church because they were in a fierce battle. They were in a fierce battle, one that wasn't fought with soldiers on fields and with armies, but one that existed in the mind and was followed with ideas. Someone once remarked that the most powerful thing in the world is an idea. You remember uh, the movie, there's a movie by Christopher Nolan um, years back called Inception. It's a good movie, It little messes with your brain if you ever watch it. And in the movie, ideas are placed into the subconscious mind of someone while they're sleeping so that they believe when they wake up that they come up with the idea themselves And that idea would grow and the person would act upon it, changing the outcome of the story. And the main character, Don Cobb, makes the claim, and I think it's true of life. I believe it's true of life. He says this, once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. Once an idea has has taken root within your mind, it's almost impossible to remove. And he continued, he said, ideas are like a virus, the resilient, highly contagious, and even the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. And if we're, if we're honest and we look around our history, ideas shape the world. What I think about the world, what I think about myself, and what I think about God shape how I live every single day. So no Other battle is more important, is more impactful, is more deadly to any person, culture, nation, follower of Jesus than the battle that exists in the mind. And the outcome of every other battle that we face hinders on this battle. And so this church was in a battle on two fronts and fought this battle on two fronts. The first was ideas that conflicted with God's revelation in Jesus, from the outside, from the world. So we're talking about what they would believe and say about the scriptures and Jesus. And ideas that conflicted, the second one was ideas that conflicted with God's revelation in Jesus from inside the church. So they were under overt attack from the world, from the outside, from city, from culture, from society and covert attack on the inside. They, and they were doing well at resisting the first front. They were doing well at resisting the first attack, but they were losing ground on the second. They were standing firm against the pressure of the city that would lure them into their ideas, but they were, they were either unaware or they were tolerant of pressure that was coming from within the body. And this can be very true of you and me as followers of Christ. Most followers of Jesus are able to spot and resist ideas that are blatantly contrary to God's will. But it's ideas that come to us wrapped up in religious language that are more difficult to to spot and resist. And this is why it's, it's harder to be a faithful disciple of Jesus in a culture like ours than it is in a nation that militantly opposes Christ. I think more of us would actually follow Christ better, more faithfully, if we lived in a nation where worshiping Jesus was illegal. Because it's clear it's black and white. Than we do in ours because our our nation, our society tends to be a little bit more gray. We have a lot of gray area, and we have, you know, a pseudo-Christian Judeo values in our in our country, and so things are kind of hard to, to spot and discern. So let's take a little bit deeper of this. Jesus says to this church in verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has its throne. So I want to throw up that next picture. Pergamum was built on this rock, right? On the citadel hill. So if you were to zoom out, you would see this, this city almost looked like it was sitting on a throne. There was, it was a flat top surface where a city was built upon and a plain below the city. And you have to imagine it looked a little bit like a throne. And so Jesus calls this Satan's throne. Now, we have to remember, you have to to let this idea sink into your mind, that, that Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot exist everywhere at all time. God can. God is omnipresent. He can be here, and he can be over there, and he can be in another country. Satan cannot Satan is a divine being that is created in time and space, and so he exists in a certain place. And so either Jesus is using hyperbole here, and he likely is, or Satan actually made his dwelling place on the earth this city. That's what he's claiming here. And the city was famous for its massive library. At the time of the writing of Revelation, um, Pergamum had a a library that consisted of 200,000 parchment scrolls. And so it was a city that was filled with ideas and thoughts and words. In fact, we get our word parchment, like as in parchment paper, from Pergamum. Not only that, um, like most cities in the Roman world, it was centered around Caesar worship, which meant that the emperor held powerful sway over people's minds. Finally, there were two temples that were most dominant. One to the Greek god Zeus, who was referred to as Zeus the Savior, And the second was to a Greek god known as, if I can pronounce this properly, Asclepios, who is the god of healing. And the symbol of Asclepios was a serpent. Sound familiar? In fact, the temple priests um, used snakes in their services to heal. And it was believed that if you would spend a night in the temple in the darkness, if one of the tame um, snakes touched you, it was believed to be the touch of of the God himself, and it would bring healing and health. So people flocked from all over the, the known world to receive this touch of this God. Now, we know in the scriptures, in the holy scriptures, and the word of God, that the serpent is representative of the devil who seduces people away from following the living God. So Jesus is looking at this church in Pergamum, and in every way, Politics, medicine, religion, the city was a center for ideas that blinded people for truth. truth. That's what Pergamum was. Truth about God, about the world, and about themselves. Satan, the accuser, and the deceiver sat on the throne here and had the mind of the whole city. You know, church, we live in a culture like this. The Western world is one where Satan sits on a throne. Not the throne, A self-claimed throne, from politics to spirituality, everything is deceiving and pulling people away from the truth. And I think that we need this at all times, but more than ever, we need discernment. And we need to pray for discernment. And we need to ask God for the gift of discernment, a spiritual gift of discernment, when navigating words and ideas and doctrines presented to us. We need to ask ourselves, is this thing, this idea, this this pseudo-truth, this truth that's being presented to me, is this of God or of not? And we cannot rest on logic and reason alone. God did give us a brain to use, absolutely. But discernment is not the difference between what is right and wrong, what is black and white. Discernment is the difference between what is right and what is almost right. And the enemy is really good at making things appear to be almost right. And so when we, when we approach it with logic and we approach it with reason, we see, well, that makes sense of course it makes sense but that's why we need the spiritual gift of discernment to be able to see the truth so jesus commends this church for standing true in the city he says this he says yet you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me not even the days of antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where satan lives so they remained faithful and they resisted deception and the truth of Jesus broke through the darkness. The fact that there is a, a church in a city where Jesus says this is, this is where Satan dwells, screams to their faithfulness. This is a church that endures and continues on. Even when forces tried to divide the church by killing one of their faithful, they remain true and they remain strong. See, faithfulness grows under pressure. Faithfulness under pressure causes growth. The other day, um... Uh, we have, you know those blinds that are like the blackout shade? It's just like one big blind. You pull down, it blocks out the whole window. We have those in our kids' room. And just before we were putting our little baby girl to sleep, it fell off. And one of the anchors had come loose. And, and you know, for our kids are used to, like, sleeping in pitch black. Any, <laughs> any ounce of light that's going to appear isn't going isn't to work for us. Because then we're awake and they're awake and nobody's happy. You know, and everyone's just angry. And, and yes, you're crying and you're upset. And I'm crying and I'm upset. We're all just tired. And so I'm like desperate. I'm like, how am I going to get this blind back up? And I didn't have anything to fix it necessarily. I had one little anchor. You know those anchors that you, you hammer into the wall and then you kind of screw a little bit and on the inside of the drywall, it kind of, there's like flanges or brackets that bracket out and so it kind of locks itself in the drywall. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but for whatever reason, it didn't work. It didn't want to do what it was supposed to do. And so like, as I was hammering it in, it kept just going deeper and deeper until it fell into the, to the cavity of the wall. And it reminded me of this saying that someone once said. They said, trying to stamp out the gospel is like hammering a nail. The deeper and harder you hit it, sorry, the harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. And if you can remain faithful to your faith and devotion to Jesus and to the truth under your pressure, your faith and devotion will become stronger and stronger more resilient. And this church remained true from the outside world, from the lure of temptation, of, of false ideas and, and false truths in a city where Satan dominated, but their problem existed within. They were quick to resist the pressure from the outside and their influence from the outside, but they had a Trojan horse. What's your Trojan horse? What what ideas have you bought into that have masked themselves in faith-filled gospel language? I sometimes see this on social media when people share posts. You know, it looks like it's truth, sounds like scripture, but it just quite ain't true. If the enemy can use the word, he will use the word to twist and pull you away to deceive, right? The enemy is not the kind who's going to just blatantly be the opposite of God. That's why when you go back to the Garden of Eden, you look in the, in the story of Genesis, you see the, the story goes that the serpent comes to deceive Eve and he doesn't go, hey, hey, eat it, it's great. Have, have at it. We're gonna have a party down here. It's gonna be awesome. And they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. I'm gonna do that instead. That's not what he does. He comes along cunning and deceiving, right? He said, did God really say? Like he didn't say God didn't say or God did say. He just said, did God really say you shouldn't? I don't know did he did he not that sounds kind of logical maybe he didn't outright say i shouldn't that's how the enemy works he twists the word of god to deceive so their problem came within this is what jesus said to them verse 14 he says nevertheless i have a few things against you there are some among you who hold to the teaching of balaam who taught balak to entice the israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. And there's like an exclamation in the English. So there's some serious, there's there's power behind that. He's saying, repent, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus appears to be passionately intolerant. Like there's no tolerance here. He's not, he's not putting up with it. He says, repent, or I'm going to come, and I'm going to fight. Like, he's not letting this slide. He's not like, hey, listen, you guys have done really good at at resisting the pressure from the culture and the influence from the culture, so I'm just going to let this slide. That would, what we might do. That's what a parent does to a child sometimes. Well, you did really good over here, so. I did that to Eli the other day, our oldest son. He had Lego taken away because he did something he shouldn't have done, and, And then later on, he did really good. So I'm like, here, you can have this back. I went against what I said before. I'm going to let this slide, buddy. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is, is just, and he cares about the truth. He loves the truth. He speaks the truth. The scriptures teach us that he is the truth. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Why is he so vigilant? Why Why care so deeply? Why does it matter? It's because falsehood and deception of any kind enslave. And Jesus is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. Why does it matter, Jesus? Because I know it's going to enslave you. I'm passionately intolerant about this because I know what it leads to and I do not want you there. Gerald Johnson, in, the, in his um, commentary on Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge, he said, yes, he is deeply grieved when people are imprisoned by illness or poverty or political oppression. But what grieves him, Jesus, the most is people who are imprisoned by false ideas, false presuppositions about the world, ourselves, and God, especially false ideas being taught and perpetuated in his name. And so Jesus calls the church in Pergamum to repent of its Tolerance of its compromising ways. Tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is. Understanding is. Graciousness is. Love is. Mercy is. Humility is. But tolerance is not. Do you know the first word that came out of Jesus' mouth when he began his public ministry? Was Repent. The first word that we have recorded in Scripture that Jesus spoke as he began his public ministry was not, I love you. Repent. Repent. The word repent means to turn around. If we're going this way, it means change direction. If you look at the original Greek language, the translation of the Greek word actually means change your thinking. Change your thinking. The church, the body of Christ, our church, is meant to be inclusive in the sense that all are welcome. New Testament says slave or free, right? Male or female, Gentile or Jew. It doesn't matter regardless of gender, race, background, history, orientation. We're meant to be inclusive in the sense that all are welcome, but the church is not to be inclusive of all ideas and all presuppositions of social and spiritual persuasions. All are welcome, absolutely. You got ripped jeans, so do I. You got receding hairline, so do I. Come on in. You're welcome here. You've, you've done all that, you're welcome. You feel like you're gonna burn up, you step into place, join the club. I will, I'll light the fire for you, no I won't light the fire. All are welcome. But then Jesus, the head of the church, remember he's the head of the church, the truth, he calls you to repent and to change our minds and to submit our thinking to him. And that's why Paul says in Romans, I've mentioned this over the past few weeks, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this age, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Repent. Change your thinking. and Submit your thinking, your thoughts, your words, your ideas about life and all things. To Christ. Jesus is so intolerant of false ideas influencing his church because any form of falsehood makes for bondage. It, it blinds us and binds us to sin and sin separates us from him. And so it's important, you know, for you and I to ask ourselves. What, what ideas about Jesus and about faith and about theology and about the way of Christ... that have I bought into that may be false? Have I? Lord, have I bought into something? If I believe something about you that is not true, your word. Don't build a theology from Facebook. That is not the book that you need to learn theology from. I know there's lots of nice posts that says, share this, and if you don't share this, Jesus is not gonna come to you at night and wish you well. I'm like, oh this sounds good. Oh no. Share this and you'll be blessed. Bologna, cheese, the sandwich, that's what that is. I digress. The two ideas influencing the church were the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of Nicolaitans. And they mean the same, mean the same thing, but one is in Hebrew and one is in Greek. And basically the translations for those, those names, those words, are conquering Lord. And so what those teachings are trying to do is conquer the minds of the people and the main two teachings was that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols and to have sex outside of the bonds of the marriage covenant. And these were two major issues that were, that were impacting the church, the first century church. In fact, Paul addressed it on a number of occasions, specifically to the Corinth church. So first is that people in that day, what they would do is they would bring an animal to the temple of their favorite God or their God of choice. And part of that animal was was burned at the altar to that God, and the other part was given back to the worshipers so they could hold a sacred feast in honor of that God. When people became followers of Jesus Christ, though, they faced a major dilemma. Because they still had friends and family members that were not saved. And they would invite them to, to these feasts to join them in eating from this table. So the question was: should a disciple go? And if they go, should they eat and partake or should they not? What should they do? And the New Testament's response, if you look specifically at Paul's, like it's alluded to in Revelation, but if you you look at Paul's description in in Corinthians, the New Testament's response is that this is not a neutral act. Eating a meal in that culture um, meant so much more than it does today. And for them to hold a feast in honor of a God, it was believed that the God himself and Christ, followers of Christ believed this too, that the God itself was a guest at the table. So in dining with and eating with the people, you were forming a bond with the God that was represented by that idol. Now we say, and this is what the Balaams and the Nicolaitans say, big deal. Idols aren't real. Food is just food. That's true. Idols are just made of wood or stone or whatever it was crafted of. And the food is just food. And if the food was sold at a market later on, it would be no big deal because the food is just food. But when you eat at the table in honor of the God, there's something spiritual happening. there. This is Jesus unveiling the curtain for us. Behind the idol, Paul talks about, behind the feast, behind the act, lurks the presence and authority of unseen spiritual forces. So by participating, the worshiper of Christ was now in worship to another deity. You know, here's what we need to understand is we are physical beings in a physical world, but we're spiritual beings in a spiritual world. And in this world, there's a spiritual battle. And just so you know, no territory is safe from the battle. Everywhere is a battlefield. Every inch is a battlefield. There is no neutral ground. This is not neutral ground. In fact, this is probably the biggest war zone. Because it's not like when you walk through the doors, the enemy's like, shoot, these doors are anointed doors he may walk into the presence of the spirit in the place and be like, shoot, the presence of God is in this physical building, but the physical building itself is not holy. There's a battle everywhere you go and the spiritual battle is not contained by walls. And so when we, as people, go about our day in our physical world, we need to remember that beyond the world, there's a spiritual world that exists and it's fighting every single day. The tolerant mind that compromises God's word and the truth and justifies sinfulness. Let me repeat that. The tolerant mind, someone who compromises the truth, you twist the truth, you kind of let this one go and you accept this one because it's not a big deal, justifies sinfulness. That person dismisses the reality of the unseen realm and forces that are deceiving and pulling people away from the truth of Jesus. And that is why many of us battle sin, and that is why many of us fall into temptation. We can't overcome our demons, so to speak. We're stagnant in our faith. is because somewhere we've become tolerant of ideas that have deceived us. We think it's not a big deal, but behind there is a spiritual force that's working against us. And if we're going to believe this is true, like, don't just believe some and not all of it. Like, if you're going to just believe some of it, get rid of it. Because the enemy is like, yeah, yeah, God loves you and he's... Yeah, you got eternity. No, well, this isn't a big deal. Just accept this. Oh yeah, that's not a big deal. What's a big deal? That's what they were doing. So they said, don't eat at those gatherings but because behind those gods are fallen spiritual authorities and forces. The second issue was sexual immorality. The Balaams and the Nicolaitans justified sexual immorality. Jesus doesn't hate sex. Jesus does not hate sex. He designed it. Think about that. Thank you, Jesus. I'll say it in church because it's biblical. He designed it. He created it. Everyone's silent when I say that. Can I come? I don't know if that's allowed. He created us as sexual beings with a sexual appetite, but he is intolerant of teachings that bind to a misunderstanding of how the body works. The false idea, and you need to catch this because many of us buy into this, is that the body is only a collection of biological material, and one day we'll be liberated from our body. We are spirit, we think, and we are in the body. We are spirit, and this is just a shell. And so what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's the soul that matters. And just so you know, that's, that's the influence of Gnosticism, which was a teaching around the first century that influenced the church to believe that matter is evil and we need to be liberated by secret knowledge. And so this false idea, it's it's penetrated a lot of evangelical thinking, and unfortunately it's not true of scriptural understanding of the body. So the New Testament's word for body, when you hear Paul speak to the Corinthians and he says, honor God with your bodies, when he talks about being the one being united with a prostitute is one with her body, that term body is the word soma. And the Soma is not only material form, it's not physical form, but the imperishable form of the personality. So the Soma is the real self. It's the whole self. Human beings do not have a Soma. We are a Soma. Human beings do not have a body. We are a body. Our body is not just a house or prison for myself and I need to escape it one day at the res- at the, you know, when Jesus returns. Our body may be our outer self, and our soul might be our inner self, but it's the same self. Therefore, what I do with my body, my soma, I do with me, I do to me. And this is why what follows is that there's far more than biology involved in any sex act. It's not just the exchange of fluids, but, but in there, it involves the soma, the essence of the person And that's why the scriptures say when there is somebody has sex, the two become one. That's why Paul, when he talks about the one who unites himself with a prostitute, is one with her in body. Because so much more is happening. It's a spiritual thing. And the teachings of the Balaams and the teachings of the Nicolaitans and so many in our society fail to realize this. There is nothing casual about sex Casual sex is not casual sex. Maybe in the physical, but so much more is happening. has deep spiritual implications. And to distort that and twist that and abuse that in any form of sexual immorality outside the covenant marriage bond between one man and one woman is to dishonor and sin against Jesus. That doesn't sound nice pastor call i know but that's what the scriptures teaching, and that's what jesus is talking about and this is why he hates the teachings of the nicolaitans and the balaams they failed to appreciate god's design for the body and sex he didn't mean it to be this meaningless act but this powerful spiritual thing that happens and bringing two people together as one and so jesus is intolerant of these false teachings and this deception because they enslave us And when we buy into them, no longer are we bowing down and worshiping just Jesus, but as he claims here, we're bowing down to the throne of Satan. I don't like studying the book of Revelation anymore. So how did this get into the church? And how did this deception come here? And it's the same way it gets into the church today. It's wrapped up in gospel language. The teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, they didn't deny Jesus, they were for Jesus. The idea is that you belong to Jesus, he sets you free, your sins are forgiven, how can anything hurt you? The idea was that you were baptized, you've taken communion, you worship with others, nothing can impact your relationship with him, except according to Jesus, false truth and deception. And it was false teachers presenting false truth. And we have that in churches today. And we have that in denominations today. We have false teaching that is wrapped up in gospel language presented to us as truth. And that's why I've said it before and I'll say it again. Is anything that's presented to you, go back to the scriptures and read them. Don't just take a verse out of context and try to apply it and say, look. Go back and read this. Like, study this. Know this inside and out. Maybe I haven't shared this before, but I remember... um, I remember as, as a student in Bible college, my teacher was telling us about, um, oh, it was a wedding or a ceremony or some sort of event he was at, and he was at a table, and sitting next to him at this table was a man who was an expert in counterfeit bills. And so they get in this conversation, they're like, he's like, so how do you, how do you know what's a counterfeit and what's not? Like, what are you looking for? And he's go, he says, do you know what? He's like, I've never looked at a counterfeit bill. I study the real thing inside and out So when there's a counterfeit, I spot it like that. And our our teacher was applying that. We were actually studying world religions at the time. But the same applies to this. Something's presented to you in gospel, faith-filled language. If you knew the word and you knew the truth, you'd spot it instantly. So when that Facebook post pops up and you're instantly, you're going to go, oh, I love that, I'm going to share that. You'd be like, wait a second, there's something there. The sermon says there's just something off about this. What I think about God, what I think about the world, what I think about myself impacts the way I live. So I need to think rightly. I need the right ideas. I need the truth. And I think this message to this church in Pergamum is so relevant for us today in a post-Christian, progressive, liberal culture and society that is in a battle for our mind. You seeing the division in our nation today? That's a battle for our mind. I need the truth, and I only know the truth by feasting on the truth. Now I thought about like as a as a form of rhetoric asking you, what false teaching have you bought into? But you wouldn't buy into it if you knew it was false. Could there be a Trojan horse in our thinking? How do we know? Does it line up with the teaching of Scripture? Does it line up with two thousand years of church history and understanding? Just because it feels right doesn't mean it is right. Last week or the week before, when I said, "Because it looks like a sheep, sounds like a sheep, walks like a sheep," doesn't mean it's a sheep. How do how do I know what I think about God's truth is truth? Is it in line with the New Testament? Does it line up with the New Testament? And if it doesn't, guess who needs to change? Which is really hard for adults because we're set in our patterns and our thinking, right? And so we're presented with an idea and we're like, I don't know, I'm going to go to a different church to find a different interpretation. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to find a video on YouTube that's going to tell me otherwise. Find anything you want when you're looking for it. But if, if my thinking doesn't line up with the scriptures, then I don't need to change the scriptures to suit my thinking. I need to change my thinking. to suit the scriptures. So how do we win this battle? Number one, and this might be the hardest for a lot of us, is humbly acknowledge that we do not have the corner on truth. Don't be so prideful to think that you've got it all figured out. Be teachable. Teachable, and I preach that to myself. Please, when I wrote this down, I'm like, "Lord, this is—I need this." Like, I studied in Bible college, the scriptures, and there's still things I'm learning that I'm like, "Wait a second, that doesn't line up." But what needs to change? Me, my thinking needs to change, and I need to submit myself to this and submit and humbly acknowledge. I don't have to. Number two is constantly open yourself up to the double-edged sword of Jesus, which means be willing to take correction from him. Receive it. When God's truth confronts, confronts your thinking about faith and him, repent, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And number three is open your mind to be filled with the word of God. The more you are in the word, the more it penetrates your mind with its truth. Let me read those again. Humbly acknowledge that we do not have the corner on truth. Constantly open ourselves up to the double edged sword of Jesus and open our minds to be filled with the Word of God. Jesus is not looking for tolerant people. Our society is. Jesus is not. He's looking for devoted people who submit their thinking, thoughts, ideas, practice, and ways to Him. People who resist the lure of culture but also will not compromise. Jesus is fighting for your mind. Because if, if if the Lord can get our mind, that, that wins every other in terms every other battle we face. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. So I want you to stand. We're gonna worship. We're gonna sing one more songs. Hannah's gonna lead us in a song here. But if we hear what the the Lord is saying to the churches. Just as Israel was fed manna on their journey to the promised land, Jesus says the same thing here and it's a way of him saying this to this church. Why would you eat at a table to lesser gods and teachings that deceive when you can feast on me? Can I, just, can I, can I challenge somebody? Why would you receive truth from any other source other than Christ? If you call yourself a follower of Christ, feast on him. Eat up his word. Not someone's translation of his word. Eat up his word. I was, I was listening to, a, to a, a testimony of a man who was in a previous church we were part of. And I was just listening to him share his, his, his story. And he just mentioned, which I was just super encouraging because I didn't see this of him when I was there. He said, every morning I wake up and I spend about 45 minutes in the word and in prayer. And I just let the spirit dictate and impress on me how my day is going to go. And that's what we need to do. We need to feast on the Lord in such a way that when we go throughout our day and we're presented with ideas and thoughts that are flying in the face of following Christ, when when Satan is is using his force and his his armies to deceive us and to tempt us and do whatever it is to, to lure us away from Christ, my mind is so filled with the word that I'm ready. I'm ready. And listen, everyone's schedule is different. I'm not going to say that you need to be here. I'm not going to get legalistic like that. But fill your mind with the word so much that every single ounce of every day, you're able to. And we're all human, but you're able to stand on truth. Stand on truth. Because this church's battle was not outside. It was ideas that kind of went influencing inside. So let's bow our heads. Father, we just thank you. We worship you. And we open ourselves up right now one more time. Come on, church. We're going to open ourselves up one more time in worship. We open ourselves up one more time, God, just to feast on your presence. So we give our minds to you right now. Holy Spirit, flood our thinking and flood our heart. In Jesus' name, let's continue. Thank you so much for listening.